139 this morning, Psalm 139. This is a Psalm of David, and it is a very moving Psalm just to read it, because it is not just about David's experience, it's about a God who is incomprehensibly huge and enormous. If you are a fan of science, then you will have heard many of these statistics I'm about to say to you, but just let's have a little bit of a lesson in astronomy and the universe around us, how, how vast and how massive is the universe that we are participating in. What is this great theater of creation that we are in awe of? Well, in the last 50 years in science and, and the ability to have telescopes at the level that we have them now, it reveals a universe that um, is estimated to have 500 um, billion, it would take 500 billion years to travel around the perimeter of the universe. That's the estimation. That's what we know so far. We are less than a speck in that kind of world. We'd, we'd be traveling the speed of light at 186,000 miles per second to, to get around the universe in 500 billion years. The, the diameter of the sun, let's get a little bit more in our solar system, uh, is the diameter of the sun is 864 thousand miles around um, it our sun could hold over a million planets the size of planet earth i mean do you realize how enormous our sun is our star um, Betelgeuse, which I had to Google the pronunciation of that. I wouldn't let myself say that right. I'm getting some nods, some affirmation. It's not Betelgeist or, you know, I mean, I want to do something there, but Betelgeuse. Um, that star, the diameter is 100 million miles. Um, next star to that star is Alpha Centauri, and that is 24 trillion miles from Earth. Okay, we're just talking about a couple of those dots in the sky, okay? Um, the Milky Way has hundreds of billions of stars in it, and then there are billions of galaxies estimated beyond our own. So these stars are like grains of the sand on all of the beaches of Earth. I mean, it's an innumerable, from our perspective, um, amount of stars that exist around us. And God has named each one of them. What's, I think, helpful about looking at our universe and these statistics is that we realize that the universe is within time and space. It is the creation, and it begs questions in our hearts regarding God, who is the creator. How can there be a being bigger than what we can't even get our minds around. How can God transcend that? And yet, as we think about the universe, how can there not be a God that created that and holds that together and holds that in the palm of his very hand? God is bigger than the universe. He exceeds what we cannot in our finitude grasp regarding the universe, he exceeds 
that. Now here's the deeper question. This is the question that David begs in Psalm 139. How can a God like that care about me? Who's on the little speck of dust called earth, and I am one of the seven billion people that inhabit this terra firma. How does God care about me? How does God know the numbers of uh, the number of hairs on my head or the lack thereof on my head? I, how does God concern himself with my attitude right now? Why is that God the only true God? Not only is he infinite, but why is he intimately acquainted with my ways? How does that happen? How does God know what my attitude is, what my actions were today, this morning, this week, this year? How has God numbered my days that I'm going to live out on this planet? Why does God care about my every whim, my every wish, my every desire? How do we put that together? Well, this is what David does in Psalm 139. God is infinite, and God is intimate. He's caring, loving, personal, with us. God, who shepherds our souls, as he is infinitely greater and larger than all of his creation, all at the same time. He's caring about, on varying degrees in terms of those who are his children and those whom he generally loves, he's aware of, caring about, making the hearts beat in concert with each other, all of the creation, all of the animals, all of the universal dynamics, he's doing all of that all at the same time. How, how does God listen to the prayer of your heart right now and the noise of all of the prayers that are happening all the time? And he always has. Well, he's outside of time and space. He's creator. That's why he does that, can do that, is doing that right now. This is our God. And the great, this is what I want to posit this morning. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's the thesis of what I think Psalm 139 is, is doing here. It's as we meditate upon the Lord's highest attributes or the high attributes of God, by doing that, we will meet the deepest needs of our souls, of our lives. Your needs are met by encountering a God who's great big. The higher, I want to say it this way, the higher and grander and loftier your vision of God is, the greater opportunity you have for your personal needs to be met. And let me say it this way, the needs that you truly need to have met, there are all kinds of needs that we think we need met, but by plumbing the depths and the heights of who this God is, it refines the kinds of needs that we need to have met by God. And God addresses them as we meditate upon who he is. And that's what David is doing. He's meditating on God's character, on his attributes. And by meditating and musing upon who God is, guess what? His deepest needs are met. Well, let's sort of follow the trail of Psalm 139 this morning and follow the heart of David as we reflect upon his reflections about God. The first attribute we're going to talk about is 
omniscience. Let's say that together, class, since it's a word we don't use every day. Omniscience. Omniscience. It means that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. God knows everything about everything. He knows everything about everything that's going on in your heart right now. He has x-ray vision into your life. And this is supposed to be comforting? Well, for David, it was. And it is for the believer, ultimately, as you are honest with the omniscience of God. Verse 1, he knows you. The Lord, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word, know, yada in the Hebrew, it, it means for God to, to see into your life, to search, that word in verse 1, that first phrase, to be searched by God means that God is examining you. He has always examined you. He's explored you. He, he knows you like People who are exploring a country, it's exploration, it's digging deeply. And David up front is acknowledging that God in his omniscience is doing that work and does do that work knowing us. I think sometimes we, we pretend and play games with God and believe that God can know some things about us, but there are other things that we hide from God and put away like a junk drawer or lock away like a closet full of toys. Not that we have anything like that in our house, but it's as if we could take thoughts or actions or attitudes and hide some from God and reveal others to God. But God sees and knows them all. He knows you. He knows what you're doing. Verse 2 and 3, David gets very practical. And you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You stop there. I mean, you have the idea of just the day-to-day functions of life. When I get up, um, when when I sit down, when I'm eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, when I'm walking around, and when I lie down to take a nap, or when I lie down to go to sleep, and everything in between, God is searching you and me and knows you and me. He knows our thoughts from afar. He knows the, the thoughts that we have when, when we're feeling distant from God or on a long journey or wherever we are. He's aware of everything that we're thinking about. He's acquainted with all my ways. Every nook and cranny in the macrosphere of our life and the microsphere of our life, God is acquainted He's discerning things about what we think about and what we say. Look at verse 4. Even before a word is on, our, on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This is speaking about the fact that even before we craft words in our mind to speak them, which that's a very automatic process for many of us. Um, and I, hopefully some more than others, hopefully I can do that. But it's as thoughts come into your mind and then you say those thoughts, God knows already what you're going to say before you say them. He's that aware. He's that omniscient. Remember, he's outside of time, so he sees into the past, the present, and the future All at the same time, he transcends those things. And verse 5 is a picture of how God literally controls your circumstances. The word picture here of being hemmed in, 
behind and before it it in one sense could be like a city that was under siege it's surrounded but maybe a a more caring picture is that God uh, has a hand behind you and in front of you and he's guiding you along in your circumstances in your day-to-day life it's all part of his plan and God is not an evolutionist He, he did not just wind up the clock of creation and then go to sleep on it He's not just transcendent, he's very eminent, which means he's here. In the Christmas season, we reflect on one name of Christ, Emmanuel. God is with us. He's present. How is this comforting? Think about that for a second. God knows everything about us. This is what David is finding solace and comfort in. Wow. God, you you really do know everything about me. Is that comforting? Well, it's also disconcerting because we know how sinful we are. We might not want God to know everything that's going on in our minds, in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our attitudes. However, there's something very comforting about the fact that God knows our hearts because he is so gracious to us. Think about how gracious God is to us how he doesn't immediately send you and me to hell for offending him with our sin, how God is patient as we work through wrong-headed attitudes and actions, as we work through unbiblical, unspiritual, and even evil thoughts. As we grow in grace, God is patient with us, Loving us. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, think about the metaphor of a father or a mother to a child. We know more about, we should know more about the sin habits in our kids than anybody else in the confines of the protection of the home. You know, parents sin and children sin. And there is sort of a, a, an understanding of those things. And in a loving home, you're patient with each other as you work through those things. Well, see, God knows it all. Nothing is hidden from him, and it shows us how, or it's at least one insight into how patient God actually is with you and me. Amen? He is. He's patient. Jeremiah, he's speaking in times of war, prophesying on behalf of Israel when they were being attacked, and he said in Jeremiah eleven twenty, he uses the omniscience of God as, as a vindication for why God could save the armies of Israel. He says, But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, the enemies, for to you have I committed my cause. So so Jeremiah is appealing to God's all-knowing attribute by saying, Look, I'm committed to your cause, so save us. Jeremiah 12.3, same thing along the same lines but you O Lord know me you see me and test my heart toward you pull them the enemies out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter all right those are Old Testament examples let's pull into the new turn to John 21 you remember Jesus had appeared at this point in the gospel story to the apostles two times and he appeared 
once more in the narrative as the Gospel of John comes to a close. He had appeared to the disciples in the upper room, and no doubt there is a subtext to the story where Peter is very anxious and very upset for his three denials of Christ. He's remembering that. He knows Jesus has conquered sin and death, that the grave could not hold him, and he rose on the third day. And Jesus is appearing in full body, fully raised, fully God, fully man, to the disciples. And Peter is depressed, I think, because we find in John 21 that he decides to go fishing. Verse 3 of 21, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. If this was the south, I'm going fishing. I'm out of here. And they fish all night. He doesn't catch anything. Jesus appears on the beach and says, lower your nets on the right side of the boat. And there are so many fish they can barely pull the nets in. He's performing miracles. And as the disciples are aware that Jesus is on the beach and Jesus wants to meet with them, he makes breakfast. And how does Jesus make breakfast? He says, breakfast, you know, and there's breakfast. He makes breakfast, and verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew who it was was they knew it was the Lord Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead Jesus primary concern in the next few verses is to restore Peter with confidence that they are still in fellowship with each other the way that Jesus does this is by prompting Peter to grasp the omniscience of Christ. For Peter to understand that Jesus knows Peter's heart, good, bad, and ugly, but all of it is the way forward for Peter's confidence in his relationship with Christ to happen and for him to be restored. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, more than these others? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That's restoration moment number one. You know that. You know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Go into ministry. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He's just laying it on the line. And Peter, no doubt, is wrestling with his own fears and anxieties for his three denials of Christ. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter's gone, wait a minute. Lord, you know everything. You know I I love you. That's the realization of joy and peace in your heart when you've blown it, when you've sinned so desperately you think it's over. The relationship's over. But no, wait. 
You know everything. You know what I did, and you know my heart now. You see in me. You know that I love you. He says, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And from that point on, Peter's confidence grew, put his life on the line. Jesus alludes to the fact that Peter is going to die for the faith, and he's ready to do it. This is God's omniscience, and this is how it works when we're trying to figure out how God knowing everything is everything to us. How it can be comforting that God knows how bad we are because God also knows that we are repentant and feel bad for what we've done. Never forget it. Early in the Christian life, sitting with a friend, I mean, this is not, this was powerful to me. I don't know how powerful it'll be to you, but just, I was just opening up to a friend of mine in the car, just saying, brother, I've blown it again. I've sinned again. I'm, I'm still working through this. And this friend of mine looked at me and said, God understands your heart. I'll never forget how powerful that was to me. It was that same John 21 moment where you go, yeah, the Lord not only sees the sin, but he sees us struggling to try to live for Christ. That's the preciousness of the omniscience of God. God sees everything. Secondly, omnipresence. Let's say it together, class omnipresence that is god is everywhere he is everywhere verses 7 through 12 follows i read where shall i go from your spirit or where shall i flee from your presence if i ascend to heaven you are there if i make my bed in sheol you are there if i take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea even there your hand shall lead me stop there david is posing the hypothetical question of if I were to just run as fast as I could, if I could fly and go up or if I could go down into the earth or under the earth, if I could take the wings of the dawn, if I could go east out this direction from Jerusalem onto the broadest horizon, or if I could get into a boat and go as far away west as I possibly could in the Mediterranean Sea, you're there! You're there. You're in this life and you're in the life to come. You are everywhere. He says, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The word presence is the face of God. That's what that means. Where could I get away from your looking gaze? Nowhere. Nowhere. You can't run and hide from God. It's important for spiritual growth to accept these realities because accepting that God is with us, he's everywhere, his presence is upon us. It's important to know that, to grow, to flee from your spirit. This, by the way, is an allusion to the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the third member of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's the same uh, word that is used by David in Psalm 51. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. God, God's Spirit is everywhere. He's with us. He says, if I shall ascend to heaven, you are there. First of all, he is in the heavens. Now, I use that plural idea of heavens because I believe David here is talking not about the afterlife at this point, but he's talking about the heavenly realms like the sky, the atmospheric level, 
space, if I were to go way up there somehow, in David's mind, if I were to get up there, you're there. That's what he's saying. I was reminded, thinking about this idea of being up in space, of the phenomenal crazy man jump that Felix, um, I think I've got this right, Baumgartner, how he jumped from space. Did you guys YouTube that or watch that? That was kind of an amazing and crazy thing for someone to do. You hear the, you know, the interaction um, of him talking to mission control and unhooking the hose and the announcer saying, well, that a boy. Wow, you know, what a moment that must have been for him to do that and for him to plummet from the edge of space, a velocity of 833 miles per hour, reaching supersonic speed, and Mach 1.25 times the speed of sound. So I looked up something that I thought I had seen in a press conference afterwards, and it was an interaction that he had with, you know, these people who were questioning about going into a situation like that and what went through your mind right before you jumped and that was the question what went through your head at the moment before you jumped and Felix said this he said well I thought please God don't let me down it's ironic he said that because he was going down (laughs) but on a serious note he was not an atheist in that moment I mean, wherever he is in his faith or his understanding, in that moment, it was, it was he and God up there. And that's David's point. If I'm up there, God's there. But this is what he also said, um, Felix said, but if you're standing in his son's arm, I assume he means Jesus, you know nothing can go wrong at that moment. That's what I was thinking. Well, if he was thinking spiritually about his safety that he would have in the arms of Jesus as a believer, he's right. I mean, ultimately, things could have gone wrong for him. He could have died, obviously, but you're saved if you're in the arms of Jesus. That's the faith of David. Well, he's in the heavens. He's in the afterlife. I pick up on the word in verse 8, Sheol, if I... Make my bed in Sheol. You are there. The word Sheol is talking about the afterlife. In the Old Testament, the afterlife was more vague than we have revealed in the whole corpus of Scripture. If you look into the visions that we see in Revelation 4 and 5 and other places, we have a grander, more detailed vision of heaven and the afterlife. But here, Sheol is just talking about being in the afterlife or the nether world, being in that other place. If I go to the afterlife, you're there. Now, let me say this, and I I don't think this will surprise all of us, but it's an interesting thought. God is present in heaven, and as believers, we enjoy the presence of God in heaven. But do you realize that God is also present in hell? He's the Lord over hell. He created hell. God's wrath is present in hell. And I think sometimes we think, you know, Satan with uh, horns and a pitchfork is um, ruling over hell, and that's his world, and no, that's the place for his judgment, where God judges Satan and the demons and unbelievers, sadly. He's in the afterlife. He's everywhere, and for the Christian, we echo Paul's heart, don't we? To live is Christ and to die is gain, because we're with Christ. We're face-to-face with the Lord, and we love the Lord, and so we're not 
hopeless in terms of the afterlife. We're hope-filled. He's there. That's why we want to go there. Why do you want to go to heaven? I, I tell you, I, it's interesting. I was reading this week about, you know, the debate that the Sadducees, I believe, tried to draw Jesus into, you know, if, if someone was married over and over and over again because, you know, the widowing effect is happening over and over and these, you know, these marriages within that family kept happening, then who is that person married to? And, and Jesus is saying people in the afterlife aren't given to marriage. They're like the angels. I think, what a bummer. I like my marriage, you know, I like my situation. But in the afterlife, if you begin to understand, you get Jesus. And all else pales in comparison to our fellowship with Christ. Then you understand how joyful a thing it will be to transition to the afterlife as a believer. You know, the grave could not hold Jesus. He rose again so that we too could, as believers, have life in the resurrection forever. All right. God is also on the horizon. Look at verse 9. If he takes the wings of the morning, that's a picture of um, the morning horizon. As far as um, the east is from the west. To dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. This is uh, not the depths of the sea as much as a picture of the distance that you could go in the sea. It's like Jonah was running from God on the ocean, but God was there, right? And Jonah got swallowed whole. God was there. Verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you. Hey, here's the picture. Um, We go through dark trials, difficult times, and you know what it's like, I think, to be in pitch black Um, physically in a room where it's pitch black and you can't see your hand in front of your face. Um, Do you know what that's like when you're going through something where life seems endless, hopeless, there's no way out, there's no answer, there's no solution, and it's just black, it's just dark, it's just bleak? Well, that's, that's a picture and a metaphor for those kinds of trials. And we don't know the occasion of Psalm 139, do we? I mean, there's no historical background to talk about with Psalm 139, but if you've known the fellowship of the infinite yet intimate Christ in your life through dark, hopeless, seemingly hopeless, black, bleak times, you know that Christ's fellowship and his light can shine through the darkest night. Amen? And it's like God in in his mind, as he sees you, you feel like you're in total hopelessness, and God sees you as if you're in the, the bright light of day at the same time. God has, you know, supernatural night vision where he sees into your life, where you think it's over, and really, God's got you in his hands. It's He's in control. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Verse 12, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let's move on to the third category. We've looked at so far omniscience, omnipresence, and now God's omnipotence. Okay, just to get our thinking caps on one more time, let's use this word together. Let's say it together. Omnipotence. It means God is the creator. He's all-powerful, and his power is on display in creation. 
Now, the creation that David is appealing to here is interesting because it's not macro creation. It's more micro creation. It's as if David is looking through the mind and vision of God into God's creative work where he creates life in the womb. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Stop there. Verse 13. There's a wealth of detail here, even in ancient Old Testament Hebrew literature that's inspired, that tells us about what's going on when God creates life in the womb. He, he's not passively involved in this process. It's not that, you know, Life has been spawned and, and God is sort of taking a back seat and watching from a distance. Again, God, um, did, we did not evolve from apes. We didn't evolve from, you know, sort of this, this process of evolution where we are a higher form of God's passive creative design. No, God says, let there be life. I mean, for all races, all people groups, anyone who's ever being formed in the womb is there because God created that life in the womb, is sustaining that life and weaving it together in mind, will, emotions, in all of the intricacies of human life in terms of that being, being the pinnacle of creation, that child being made and formed and fashioned in the image of God, that soul being an eternal soul that will go to heaven forever or hell to forever, that person in the womb is by God's intricate, powerful design. When you think of the eye, and the way it works, and I don't know how it works, and I didn't research how it works, but it's fascinating. The ear, how it listens, the senses, the touch. When you think of uh, the, the way your, your eye automatically blinks, the, the, the voluntary and involuntary mechanisms of the body. When you look at the hand, when you look at a baby's hand and how it, how it works and how a mind works, you see God's masterful handiwork. Something that strikes me in reading these verses is that no matter where a child is in terms of aptitudes, in terms of wholeness, in terms of children, some who are mentally handicapped or disabled, they are still part of the supernatural design handiwork of God. All of them. The picture here of this poetic language where God is knitting me. That's what David says, he knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's formed my inward parts. It's a vivid picture of, you know, the vital organs, the heart, the fashioning work of God in the prenatal work in the womb. He made you and me comprehensively. And secondly, he made us wonderfully. Look at the response. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. What's, what's David doing there? Is David having kind of a self, self-absorbed, um, you know, self-worship experience in this moment? Wow, you know, I am wonderful, and how do you like me so far, man? I mean, far out, look what you made, you know? I'm just looking at myself in the reflection of the stream here, and I am just so excited about what you've done. You know, we laugh at that, but there is a lot of Christian religion that 
says you have to love yourself to accept yourself to forgive yourself and before you can love anybody else you better love yourself hey right the bible says love your neighbor as you love yourself so you, you better get into some self-love and self-confidence and self-worth and self-esteem before you can pour it out on other people i find that when i focus on myself in that way i get pretty depressed and that the key to my depressed heart is to take my mind off of being self-absorbed, acknowledge that I'm a sinner, ask God to forgive me for my sins, and focus on God and say, God, you have done great things by creating people like us, but it is for your glory and your name's sake that I mention how great a creation we are. We are the pinnacle of creation. There is majesty in being a human being, but the majesty and glory reflects back on the creator not on us that's what david is doing he's praising god because god creates as the master creator and designer human beings and it also is exciting for us to extol and celebrate the creation of other people we should love people we should love um, babies who are yet to be born who are being created in the womb we should love life we should love individuals we should love all the people groups of the world we should i mean anchorage is such a beautiful place because it's a melting pot of of transient humanity that comes to this glorious place in the world where we get to engage all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds it's like a miniature new york city experience where you get to know all kinds of people beautiful thing but that the beauty and the worship comes when you worship God for creating people who are like-minded in Christ and yet different and that's just a wonderful tapestry to enjoy in the body of Christ wonderfully made only God can make people so we worship God as creator he made you not only comprehensively and wonderfully but also in secrecy or secretly behind the scenes verse 15 my frame was not hidden from you when i was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth now the depths of the earth here is talking um, metaphorically or as a word picture of a child in the womb and back in david's time there weren't ultrasounds there weren't even ultrasounds like when we first started having children where you kind of see you know in black and white something white something blurry and you go is that a boy or a girl or what 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 is that you know i don't know if you've ever been in an ultrasound uh, my favorite ultrasound moment was when we found out that we were having twins and and it was like the wand passed over and you know and it was the twins run in the family and Judy started to cry and said, I've been praying for twins. And I'm like, what? I didn't know about that prayer. <laughs> Sat down on the cushion. I had coffee. It launched. I mean, it was dramatic. There were towels going on the floor. What? What happened? I'm still trying to figure out what happened. It's wild. You want to hear something wild? I, this is one of my favorite insights from the, the doctor. He, he said, you know, tell me exactly the different movement patterns between the two boys because there were two boys and one was very excited and the other was more calm and it was like Carson and Brady and hey they were fearfully and wonderfully made and being made personality and all um, back then I want to point this out though look look at verse 16 your eyes saw my unformed substance 
Now, nowadays, uh, with ultrasounds, you, if you've been exposed to them, you, you see that, you know, eyelashes and cuticles and details are happening at early stages in this development. And that's what David is, under the inspiration of Scripture, revealing to us. And we know that through science. It's meshing with Scripture, but, but God sees things in vivid color. And, and there are people who have suffered through the angst and anxiety of having chosen to abort babies and go through that. And I just want to mention that to say, listen, there is grace. The cross is where you go and take decisions like those um, to the Lord. And, and where babies die prematurely before they breathe air, um, where, where babies are aborted or, or things happen or there are miscarriages or a baby dies early in childhood. There's SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. There are moments of deep pain and loss and the comfort is found in the gospel. You trust God, you, you repent, and you, you trust in faith that God has everything in control, under his control, and God gives forgiveness. And God, I believe, reunites in heaven the babies that are gone. They're there. They're waiting, and I don't know how that works out and how those relationships work, but that is our resurrection hope because Jesus welcomed the children to himself and said such as these belong the kingdom of God that's in the Lord's mind and we trust him for those reunions well not only are you made comprehensively in secrecy intricately you're made purposefully verse 6 16 again your eyes saw my unformed substance, verse 16. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Hey, listen. God planned your life before you lived it. Again, God is all-knowing. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. And God is either powerful enough to plan our life or he's not. And I got to quote um, the early church father Chrysostom at this moment. Chrysostom, who was a preacher, he was called Golden Mouth. He said this, reflecting on Psalm 139, he says, I thank you that I have a master whom I cannot comprehend. I mean, we want God to be near to us, but we want him to stay God. We don't want to shrink God down to some human being that we're worshiping falsely. I was reading in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 6 and 7, but chapter 6 this week, and how Solomon, David's son, was dedicating the temple that David had predicted and had, had been set up to build, and yet David sinned, and so he could not build the temple of God. And so Solomon built the temple of God, and when he built the temple of God, he created this gold platform that in Second Chronicles 6, he knelt on and gave his dedicatory prayer, and he said, there is no heavens and there are there there is no building that can can contain your glory and solomon was very clear to say that look this is not just one of the houses of worship along the pantheon of idolatrous worship where we worship people and we worship people like statues and call that god no the highest heavens cannot contain who you 
are. And so, God, if you deign to fill this house with your glory, we recognize that this is a vision of your glory, but you are so much bigger than anything that man could create. That kind of vision of God is the kind of vision it takes to believe that God has numbered all of your days. That he knows you're in from the beginning. He's written it all down in a book. You're living your life exactly according to God's will. Ephesians chapter 1, it says, All things are happening according to the counsel of your will. Ephesians 1.11 All things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose purpose that God has for your life is for you to be like Jesus. The goodness in your life is that he's using these days that he's recorded in the book, his book, to shape you and make you into being like Jesus. And there's a lot of people who they want to say, well, you know, in Romans 8, 28 and 29, it talks about this word foreknowledge, and that must mean that God has a crystal ball, and he looks down through the corridors of time, and he sees that, you know, on July the, you know, 30th or whatever, I know that you're going to choose me five years from now, and so I choose you. Now, who's in control of that moment? Man or God? Incomprehensibly huge, massive, transcendent God, or, you know, I saw what you were going to do, and so I choose you. That's how we put it together. Listen, God is bigger than that. Foreknowledge means God knows you, past, present, and future, as he has created you, and he's created your life for you to walk in. He's created the journey for you. Ephesians chapter 2.10, For we were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Job 14.5, Job says, Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Well, he made you comprehensively, made you wonderfully, made you secretly, he made you intricately, he made you purposefully, and he made you intimately, verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now, I, I confess, I love the beach, there are people who do not like the beach. It would be fun to take a survey. Who does not like the beach, you know? How dare you say you don't like the beach? But, you know, stickiness, you know, being too hot. I don't like that. I don't like to lay down and get sand in my hair. I don't mean to break the moment. I can't resist but to share this. Um, you know, because we, we have multiple children and children sometimes come into my bed, it puts me in other kids' beds. I'm like a nomad, you know, wandering around looking for a place to lay my head. And I walked up to my mattress, and I kid you not, it's so funny. You never know what you're going to find. I mean, there are crickets loose in our house because we feed a lizard. Um, I, found, I found a salt shaker. I've not yet questioned the children as to, it's a salt shaker by little Owen's bed. What's he doing? Like, what carrots are he eat, is he eating in bed? And the salt shaker's there, and so I pull the covers back, and he's the one in the bed, so I'm going to use his bed. And I lay down, and there's salt all in the bed. <laughs> Forgive me for this pun. I was assaulted. No, I mean, I, you know, I'm, but I just had to, in my mind, say, look, these grains of salt are like being on the beach and going to sleep. I love the beach. I, that's how I got here from there. 
if you take, whether, you know, we're on a beach in Alaska, which, you know, is more of the graying look, looking sand or, you know, silty, silty environment or, or grains of sand, and you let those particles run through your fingers, you can't really watch every single one of those grains of sand because there's so many of them. They're innumerable. You can't number them. But that's how many thoughts God is having towards you personally. Say, how is that possible? God is thinking billions and trillions of thoughts towards me and everybody else all at the same time? Yeah, that's what this says. God is having as many thoughts as there are grains of sand on all the beaches around the world and infinitely more all the time towards you. And I love what David says here. Even when I awake, I am still with you. Verse 18, I can't count the the number of thoughts you're having to me, but even while I'm in my most helpless position, whether you're in a bed filled with salt and waking up, God is there and he's still thinking about you. That's the idea. He's continually thinking thoughts about you. And that's the kind of God we need because we know how sinful we are. We need that kind of gracious, loving care towards us as we fight the battle of our sins. He's there. He made us infinitely. He has watch care on our lives. It's like where we, if you ever watch one of your children sleep and breathe and you pray for that child and love that child and you want the best for that child and that's the kind of watch care that God has for you and me. What are David's two responses? I want to sum up with verses 19 to 24. Um, what are his summary thoughts? This is sort of a very, as Derek Kidner says, a very abrupt change from reverie to resolve. It's like, this is the kind of God I worship. This is the kind of God that knows me. He knows me well. He knows me intimately. He made me. And what is David's response? Well, he immediately begins to become indignant over sin that's around him. Not just the sin in his own life, but specifically, he begins to speak as a king in an imprecatory way, in in a vengeful way for the name of God and in the name of God's glory. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Listen, there is no neutrality with God in terms of sin. There is no gray area. There is no middle ground. There is no, I've got one foot in the sin pot and one foot in the God pot. No, there, there is no, I'm standing on the fence and everything's okay. You can't put it in neutral and coast. You have to choose up sides. Am I with God? Am I for God? Am I for his word? Do I believe what he says is sin and sinful or do I not? Am I, am I gonna be holy as God is holy or am I gonna kind of live in, in between worlds, which is really siding with sin. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? Nothing. None. What fellowship has Christ with Satan? Belial is what it says, but Satan. Nothing. None. There is no fellowship between the two. You're moving in one direction or the other, and we're called as believers to have a holy hatred for sin. And how that works out in terms of loving sinful people and hating sin, that's we don't have time to really completely unpackage that. But it can be sinful not to be disgusted by the sin in our world around us. It's very easy to get, well, I know that abusive situation happened over there, but hey, it happens everywhere. I know that person's starving to death, but I don't care. 
I know that person's, you know, being beat up in the home, but so what? You know, I know this is happening or that, you know. Well, you know, they're, they're, our world is sinful. But instead, we are called to grieve alongside the Holy Spirit and grieve for people. Hey, when you're attacked by someone, you know what the godliest response you can have? The, the godliest way you can respond when someone assassinates your character is for you to grieve for that person. Not in a pious way where you're looking down on that person, but you, you pray for that person. That's why Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You have a heart of love, but you're grieved over their sinful state. And so David is speaking in terms of a warrior and a warrior king's language, but he's saying, I loathe those who rise up against you. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you? I'm siding with the army of the Lord. Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. But see, here's David's second response, and he doesn't stop with just this indignation towards God's enemies. He puts the finger back on himself and says, search my heart regarding my sin. He's dealing with sin in two ways. In one sense, he's saying, I have a holy indignation against sinners. And secondly, I'm asking you to search my own heart because I know that I am a sinner. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The same word, search, that's used in verse 1. God is the one who has searched me is the same word that David is using in verse 23 where he is inviting the Lord to search him. Does David know or not know that God is omniscient and searching him? He's just written this whole psalm about how God knows him, sees him, is involved with him through and through. And yet as a believer, David is saying, search me. Do you see that? I know you search me. Search me. Look me over. Examine me. Hey, you can't confess sin until you've named a sin a sin. God, reveal sin in my life so I can confess it, deal with it, and kill it. So that's what David is saying. Search me. He's opening the door, saying, I know I'm a sinner. Again, I was reading 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and as Solomon prays, the theme of his prayer as he's inviting God's holy presence to inhabit this temple is simply this. He is praying a prayer of provision for the nation of Israel because he knows Israel's going to sin some more. We're making this holy place and I know that the nation's going to sin. We're going to come under judgment. In verse 36, this just struck me in my quiet time this week. Solomon says, for there is no one who does not sin. You know, the purpose of the temple was, primarily, was it to hear good music, choirs, to see beautiful things like a museum? Was it to enjoy ceremony and the church calendar? No. The, the purpose of the temple was to deal with sin. And your number one purpose for coming to church is to say, God, search my heart, because there was one sacrifice where the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, and I'm trusting in his death on the cross, that death sacrifice of the Lamb alone for me to be forgiven. He died and he rose again, vindicating that sacrifice. That's why we come to worship, 
is to seek God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are both infinite and intimate. Lord, grow us in...